Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would follow us on Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Today, we're going to be talking about work with Oren Cass of the Manhattan Institute. He's got a book out about it. Also, there's an Easter egg in the podcast, which is, I say that we're going to discuss something and that we never do. So you'll have to listen closely to figure out what it is that is the missing topic of today's conversation. Our guest today is Oren Cass, author of a new book, uh, which is The Once and Future Worker. Oren, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. So let's start with the basic question. Uh, what is your book about? <laughs> uh, the short answer is my book is about work. Uh, the slightly longer answer is it's about the role that work plays uh, in individual lives, the the role it plays for families and communities, and and therefore I think the central role that it should play in our public policy, uh, which it doesn't right now. Okay, so classical economics has tended to favor favor maybe is not the right word, but it's tended to focus on consumption as opposed to production as being the ultimate goal of economic activity. Uh, so you know, ideally we don't work as an end in itself, but we work because we want to be able to buy things and consume things. Uh, work is considered kind of a, a bad thing from that perspective. Uh, and I'm, as a naturally lazy person, I find that kind of appealing. But I, I take it that you have a somewhat different perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that consumption is great. Uh, but in when economics focuses exclusively on consumer welfare and thinks that kind of whatever gives us the highest material living standard at any point in time is absolutely the best thing, uh, I think it overlooks a lot of what is actually really important to people. And if you look at, you know, what drives individual satisfaction, it turns out to be really closely tied to work. Work is incredibly important to people's self-esteem, to their mental health. Uh, it's really important to their happiness. You know, I, I tend to be skeptical of, of so-called happiness studies, but I think you can do good ones when you track one person over time and you see how they're reporting changes in, in their feelings. Uh, and what you find is that people will report essentially a return to their kind of baseline level of happiness, almost regardless of what happens in their life. So marriage, divorce, birth, death, permanent disability. Of course, you see blips, but but people kind of get used to almost anything. Uh, and, and the one exception is unemployment. People never get used to not having work, uh, and they end up permanently less happy. And so I think for individuals, it, it plays that incredibly important role in giving, in giving people purpose, frankly, in giving them something to do every day, a reason to get up, a reason to engage with other people. Uh, and partly as a result, it then has really important effects for, for family and community. It's incredibly important to uh, family formation, especially for men. Uh, a lot of both the kind of economic and, and social rationales that, that bring people together to form families has to do with the fact that people are working and, and want to kind of be in relationships where people can support each other. It's equally important for, for family stability. So again, especially for men, when, when men lose their jobs, that turns out to be an incredibly strong predictor of divorce and family breakup. Uh, and then it's critical for, for kids as well. Kids raised in households 
where uh, parents are working have much better outcomes. Uh, and even just kids growing up in communities where other people are working. So forget about your own parents. Just being in communities where people are working full time uh, is actually a really important predictor of kind of upward mobility and, and opportunity. And so I think when we just look at consumer welfare and say, well, whatever gets people lots of stuff at the end of the day is going to be how we measure prosperity, uh, I think I think we not only do we miss a lot of the picture, I think we, we miss the most important parts of the picture. That's really interesting, but I kind of want to understand where you would go sort of from, from a policy perspective from that understanding. And let's kind of start with uh, the 2016 election. Arguably, part of the uh, driving force behind Donald Trump winning the election was that he catered to sort of the forgotten man. How has he done in terms of policy of improving the lot of the displaced, the disrespected, uh, sort of the forgotten man? Well, you know, I think when it comes to Trump and, and a lot of the political changes that we're seeing, you really have to separate out discussion of problems from discussion of solutions. And the reason I say that is I, I don't think there's a whole lot to say positively necessarily about the actual concrete actions that the Trump administration is taking on a lot of fronts. Um, I do think, however, there's a lot positive to be said about the kinds of problems that that Trump focused on in the campaign and that his administration has continued to highlight uh, and, and really lifting those up and, and elevating them as things that we need to have a lot more concern for. And the, the best way to think about that is to think about how we've historically talked about economic policy and, and contrast that to how he's really talked about it. You know, the, the historic view uh, has has obsessed over the, the so-called economic pie, right? Anyone who spent any time listening to politicians, working in policy themselves, um, has heard the metaphor of the economic pie. And as long as we grow the economic pie, everyone can have more. It always struck me as kind of a weird metaphor in that actual pies don't tend to grow. Well, that's a fair point. I suppose if they were being more precise in their language, they should say, bake a bigger pie, right? <laughs> that if if every year we can bake a bigger pie than the year before, everyone can have more pie. And if that process creates winners and losers, you can always take pie off of some people's plates and put it on other people's. And, kind of, you know, who doesn't like pie, right? That's the... I like pie. Uh, that, that, <laughs> I like pie, too. Um, but that, that view, to, to take the metaphor too far... Uh, it doesn't concern itself with who is baking the pie. So it's it's this very consumer-focused model that says, look, maybe as our economy grows and evolves, we're going to move to a place where a few extremely productive people are really generating most of the surplus, and then we're going to use various policies to redistribute it. But as long as everybody's getting more every year, we should call that a success. And that's essentially the model that we've taken. Folks on the left of center, that's typically what they've emphasized. Uh, we do want growth, and then we need a lot of these sort of safety net and redistribution programs. Folks on the right have more focused on saying, well, actually, as long as you do bake a bigger pie every year, you can just trust that everyone will get a bigger slice. That's kind of going to be part of the system. And I think what you see uh, in, in the way Trump spoke about these issues was to say, and, and rightly so, that's just not right. That, in fact, if you look at our pattern of growth, if you look at how our economy has evolved, it is certainly not the case that everyone is naturally sharing in the prosperity and getting bigger slices themselves. Uh, and it's not right that people are satisfied or, or are benefiting the way they're supposed to from just receiving more government largesse to make up for it. Uh, people actually expect to be productive contributors in their own right. They expect to see patterns of social organization and economic development that are going to keep them uh, included. 
Uh, and if we are not doing that, then we have a real problem. So I wanted to spend some time talking about you know the various proposals that you have. You, you go through uh, a list of them, both in your book, and then there was a, a recent article in National Affairs, I believe. Uh, it was in the American Interest. But, but before we get to that, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about you know what exactly is the nature of the problem here, because of course it is the case that. Right now, the unemployment rate is fairly low, so most people who are actively seeking work are, are able to find it. Wages had been stagnant for a while. They seems like maybe they're picking up again. But um, when wages are stagnant, you know, if people are upset about that, maybe that's a they're really upset that they can't buy more stuff. So, you know, what what are some of the signs that there actually is a serious problem here? A lot of folks at uh, Cato or Steven Pinker or whatever that have lots of charts and graphs, very convincing to show that things have never been better. Is, isn't it really just kind of an illusion of a problem that we're facing? Well, I certainly don't think it's an illusion. Um, I think there are certainly many people for whom things are great. And I think when you look at it in aggregate, if things are great enough for enough people, things in aggregate can look great. But if you take kind of the median American who still doesn't earn even a community college degree, who has seen stagnant wages for, you know, going on 35 or 40 years now, and then you even more look within that group and talk about, you know, men with less than a college degree in particular have seen declining wages. I don't think it's right to say, you know, things look fine on those kinds of measures. And then I think it's also telling when you start looking kind of one layer deeper and you say, sure, the unemployment rate is very low, uh, but the share of the of the male labor force, well, excuse me, the share of prime age males who just aren't in the labor force is is getting worse. It's not as bad as it was in the depth of the reception of, of the recession, obviously. But uh, right now we're supposed to be at the peak of a business cycle. And the peak of this business cycle looks worse than the peak of the last one, which looks worse than the peak of the one before that. So when you just look at the peak of each business cycle and say, hey, this is great, unemployment is low, uh, that's, of course, something you could have said in 2006 or in 2000 or and so on. Uh, and, and you'd be missing the, the bigger picture, which is that we're sort of on this downward slope. And if you celebrate every time you get a bump in your downward slope, you can really deflate all of the all of the momentum to take action but but you're not actually uh celebrating a change in the trajectory and then the last thing i'd say is you know even if you if you want to focus on the kind of very pinker-esque metrics of of true well-being you know life expectancy in this country is now declining for its third straight year uh something totally unprecedented in our history something that's not happening elsewhere in the western world and so you have a significant share of the population and that's again driven by uh, in particular declining life expectancy among among middle-aged uh working class uh predominantly white folks who are exactly the people who have seen really uh a, a very serious decline in their economic fortunes um, and, and then at the end of the day, you have the political situation we have. You know, it's it's fine to say, well, I'm happy, so that's good. But it, it's awfully clear that there are an awful lot of people who are not happy with the direction of the country. And by the way, most people have been saying they're unhappy with the direction of the country since well before the finan the, the Great Recession even struck. So, you know, there's I, I make the point in the book, you, you can always do the data analysis to show that things are good if you want. But the people actually out there in the country don't feel that way. And, and if it kind of comes down to who, who should they believe, you know, the statisticians or their lion eyes, uh, I, I think they're rightly going to 
going to go with what they actually perceive the situation to be in. And I think that's something we need to listen to. So beyond listening, what would be some of the, uh, I guess, some of your policy proposals that would address this? Yeah, sure. I think kind of starting a little bigger picture and then we can dive into specifics. I think the place we have to focus is the labor market. I'm, I'm a free market guy. I think markets work very well uh, in a lot of situations. I think uh, they also have a, an awful lot of benefits in terms of promoting competition, in terms of facilitating uh, free choice. But we have to recognize that markets are neutral mechanisms. They take the conditions that they encounter and they kind of spit out an answer. And typically, whatever answer they spit out is fine. The whole point is that the market spits out the efficient answer. The problem is that there's nothing in economics that says that the efficient answer in the labor market is going to be one where everyone can actually find good work that allows them to support a family. So what we've been doing for a long time now is essentially saying, well, look, if the efficient answer is that an awful lot of people don't work or can't really support a family, that's fine, too. And I think that's where we have to change our mindset and say, no, that's not fine. We actually have a substantive social preference for a labor market that does allow people to find work that's going to let them support their families. Uh, and if that's the case, then we then we actually have to look at the conditions that the labor market is operating in. So I don't think we should go kind of to the other extreme and just say, well, let's just kind of use a bunch of regulations to order the labor market to do this or that with a high minimum wage or this rule or that rule, because typically that, that makes the market look even worse or work even worse. I think what we need to do is say, well, why is the market settling where it is? And so from the demand side, what are the kinds of economic conditions that affect what kinds of businesses people start, what kinds of investments they make? From the supply side, what affects you know, what skills workers have, what kinds of work they're prepared to do and willing to do? When it comes to kind of trade and immigration, I think there's a very important question of how we draw borders around the labor market. Because from a consumer welfare point of view, you don't care. Right. You say, look, the more cheaper stuff we can get to people, the better. End of story. If you actually care about workers' interests and labor market outcomes, who who's allowed to do that work in the labor market matters a lot. Uh, I think we should look a lot at organized labor, which the way it has been operating isn't very constructive. Uh, but in theory, the idea of having workers organized and able to represent their interests collectively, and especially to be able to bargain with their employers so that instead of everyone having to live with whatever rule comes from Washington, if you have organized workers, you know they should be able to work out with their employers arrangements that are better for both sides. Uh, and then finally, I think we have to talk about a wage subsidy. And if we want more work and if we want to support less skilled, lower wage workers, uh, instead of flowing all of our money through a safety net that delivers them benefits for not working, uh, I think we should look for ways to put money into their paychecks so that the support that we are trying to provide actually comes directly attached to work, makes it more attractive to work, and also encourages employers to create those kinds of jobs. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit more about you know, go through the items that you listed, the wage subsidies, trade and immigration, unions, and then one that you, you didn't just mention, but I think that is in uh, your book, which is environmental protection. Mm -hmm. uh, so start with the, the wage subsidy. Currently, we have the earned income tax credit, which, as I understand it, is vaguely similar to uh, the sort of wage, wage subsidy idea that you're talking about. So what what is it that you have in mind here and how would it be different from the EITC. Yeah, so that's a great way of putting it. So we have this thing called the earned income tax credit, which is essentially for low income households at the end of the year at tax time when they file a return, 
if their income was in a certain range, they can actually get a big tax credit back from the government. Uh, if you have kids, it can be as big as $5,000. And that's just not, that's not against taxes you've paid. That's even if you didn't owe any taxes, you can get $5,000. And so if you think about it in a way that is designed to be an encouragement to work, even if you're working at a low wage, you, you have this additional benefit coming because you earned the money. Obviously, it's a somewhat obscure program. It doesn't really make jobs look more attractive in the moment. So if you're deciding whether to take a low-wage job or not, you're not especially likely to think, well, a year from now, there's this government program that might send me a check. Uh, and it's also a really counterproductive way to help support people's finances. If you're talking about low-income households in particular, the idea that they should try to manage their budgets around a huge chunk of their income coming in a single check the, the following year doesn't make any sense. Uh, but what does make the, uh, sense is the idea that we should try to deliver people benefits when they are working and because they are working. And so the way that I think we should do it, and what I call a wage subsidy, uh, is to do it in each paycheck. And the easiest way to think about it is to think about it as compared to payroll taxes. So every pay period, the government takes money out of every paycheck, depending on how much you've earned, uh, for payroll taxes. It's that line on your on your pay stub that says FICA. Uh, and we could just as easily have a line on that pay stub that says work credit. That could be extra money that goes into your paycheck and that gets calculated on the base of your hourly wage. So let's say you're working at $9 an hour. You could also be earning a $3 an hour wage subsidy. So if you work 40 hours at the end of the week, there would be an extra $120 in your paycheck on that work credit line. Uh, and, and having that kind of policy has a few really constructive effects. One is... You can now literally advertise that job as a $12 an hour job, right? You you work this job, these hours, you are going to get paid $12 an hour. And so that's going to be a much more attractive job that's going to encourage people uh, to come into the labor market and, and take that first job. And it also turns out to benefit employers. You know, some things, something that some people dislike about this kind of proposal is they say, oh, well, why should we be, you know, supporting these low-wage employers? We should just yell at them until they... Uh, pay higher wages, which or, obviously or tax them is what Bernie Sanders wants to do. Well, right? <laughs> that's right. Or, or let's let's punish employers that offer low wage jobs. Um, but the reality What's is that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reality is that we that sure it's fine to prefer a high wage job to a low wage job, but that's not the choice. the The choice is really much more a low wage job or no job. And if we recognize a lot of social value in having jobs available to less skilled workers, especially if they're ones that we can make pay a little bit better, uh, if they're going to get people into the workforce, if they're going to get them started on a path that could lead to higher wages down the road, um, if, if that's something that has social value, then first of all, we should be celebrating the employers who, who offer that kind of work. And second of all, we should be supporting its its creation and, and its offer. And so... Uh, when you subsidize something, you get more of it. And by subsidizing work in this way, we would have more low-wage jobs created. We would have more people taking low-wage jobs. And we would have more, pe more money in people's paychecks at the end of the day. How would you pay for it? So I would pay for it out of the safety net that we already have. Uh, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year on means-tested programs, meaning so not Medicare, not Social Security. These are just programs targeted at, at lower-income households. And virtually that entire trillion dollars is is uh, handed out either without reference to work or most of it actually in ways that discourage work. Because 
it goes to people who don't have any income. And as soon as you start to earn income, the benefits decline. So we actually structure our safety net in a way that that penalizes people for working. And, you know, obviously, there are a lot of very important components in that safety net. And a lot of it goes to supporting people who can't work. So I'm not suggesting we wipe that out by any means. I'm not suggesting that we cut the total amount that we spend helping lower income households. But the program that I'm describing would would cost roughly 200 billion uh, out of the trillion dollars. And so taking 20% of the safety net, and that would mean, you know, reducing. So first of all, you would take all the money from the earned income tax credit, Uh, you would reduce programs like food stamps and disability back to the scale that they were before the recession, Uh, you would reduce some of your spending on something like Medicaid, uh, and, and you would keep those core programs in place for for the people who truly can't work uh, and, and are, are especially reliant on those supports. But then you would have this big component of, of our spending that's focused on people who can work and, and who should work and uh, and who can receive cash, which is, you know, in a sense, the best benefit can receive that in their paycheck when they do work. And what I what I find attractive about this compared to, say, the the idea of universal basic income is that it does incentivize work, but it also, once somebody's in the labor market, it doesn't seem to uh, disincentivize progressing in your career and, and finding the next job, which seems to be uh, one, of, one of my biggest concerns about this you know, UBI type of concept. Yeah, you know, UBI... UBI comes up a lot in this book because, in a sense, UBI is is the uh, it's the end point of this economic pie thinking. Uh, let's just have you know it doesn't matter if if Elon Musk earns all the money for everybody and then mails everybody a check that that's something that we should somehow celebrate uh, and and we should disconnect how you support yourself from work uh, and and I think that's just a it, uh, the economics don't work we can't afford it but even if they would I, I think it's just a really dangerous model for us to be pursuing as a society. Whereas, as you said, here, the whole premise is baseline expectation is that if you can work, you do work, that work is how you support your family. Uh, and if if part of that earnings from work is something that that we as society are contributing to, that's fine. That's that's something that we should be willing to pay for and, and a direction in which we should want to help. Right. So there's inherently sort of almost there's a welfare reform aspect of this that that over time, more people that are in the job market that are looking to advance themselves, they, they no longer have a disincentive to work, that perhaps over time, this could actually save tax dollars? Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the one of the sources of the savings, if you kind of try to do, you know, estimate out the cost of this plan is that if you do this plan and more people start working, uh, sure, you're, you're subsidizing their earnings, but they're also now earning a lot of their own money than they otherwise would, uh, which means right off the bat, you don't need to necessarily provide the same level of, of government benefits. Um, so there's some savings right away. Uh, but my, in my mind, the much bigger savings is over time, that, mm-hmm. that you never get that second job unless you start in that first job. Right. And so part of the, the value of work is not just, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, why is work so important to individuals? It has a lot of sort of intangible inherent value, uh, but it's also crucial to economic opportunity. The, the only way you're ever going to, to kind of make progress, develop skills, uh, move into higher paying jobs is if you're working in the first place. Would you would you like to, to uh, turn and talk a little bit about immigration? And you mentioned that that would be another way we'd need to uh, regulate and perhaps support the uh, the local labor market. Yeah, I think you know immigration and and trade actually kind of 
fit together in this discussion, and, and obviously many of the specifics and, and the policy tools differ, but if we're actually concerned about labor market outcomes and whose work is demanded in the labor market, what kind of workers businesses expect to have available and design their own businesses around, what kind of wages they pay, uh, then who's actually in the labor market matters a tremendous, a, lo- a tremendous amount. And so when you talk about something like immigration, um, obviously there's a tremendous amount of debate around the exact effects on wages and is it good, is it bad, what has it been historically. Um, I, I think if, if I can try to summarize the, the mainstream view of, of what the economics tells us, it's that pretty much with the balance of immigration that we've had in the past and, and the immigrants who are coming to the country, it hasn't necessarily had a substantial wage effect one way or another because we have a lot of less skilled immigrants coming in, but we also have a lot of highly skilled immigrants coming in. And so in a sense, the the addition to the labor market closely mirrors the, the proportion of, of folks who are already in the labor market to begin with. I think in a sense, that's the wrong question to to ask and the wrong way to look at it, because regardless of what level of of more highly skilled immigration we have, we can independently decide how much less skilled immigration we want to have. And that's where I think we can be pretty confident that that the less skilled workers who are already in this country, and by the way, some of, you know, a lot of them are immigrants too, but those folks don't benefit from more competition entering the market. They they benefit from there being fewer of them in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, actually imposing some constraints on businesses and saying, uh, look, there, there's not just this sort of unlimited pool of, of less skilled cheap labor. Uh, there actually are limits on on who you have access to in this labor market, and you have to find a way to make your business work with the people who are here. Uh, I think that's something that's going to accrue very much to the benefit of the less skilled workers who are here, and and so that's the bias we should have in our policy. Yeah, so we we're actually about to record with uh, Rehan Salam, who has a new book out about immigration that seems uh, broadly similar in perspective to what you're talking about. Yes, and his book is awesome, by the way. Recommended to your listeners. Yes, it's a good book. It's a good book, uh, and it's 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 short, which is uh, also a virtue these days. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, environmental protection. So your idea is. Uh, in order to get people back to work, uh, just uh, repeal all the regulations and, uh, you know, people will work until they die of black lung or whatever? Uh, that is not the idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is striking how quickly, though, when when you write about this topic, that, that a certain group of people takes it that way. Um, the argument that I make about environmental regulation is it's certainly not that it's bad or that we shouldn't have any but that it's that we should be cognizant of the effect that it has. Um, and, and this is something really striking that I, I didn't realize for a long time and that I think most people even heavily engaged in public policy don't, which is that all of those fancy cost-benefit analyses uh, that EPA and, and all of the agencies do with their regulation, uh, they do not take employment or economic effects into account. So when you hear about the costs and benefits of, you know, tightening some restriction to make air a little bit cleaner. Uh, you hear about all of the benefits in terms of public health. The only cost that they consider is the actual cost of installing the equipment. Uh, if you ask them, well, what about employment? They'll actually say, well, maybe it will increase employment because you'll have to hire people to install the equipment. Um, and that's frankly just a ridiculous way of thinking about the economic consequences of regulation. 
when we make it relatively more onerous and expensive to do work and make investment in the industrial economy, whether that's infrastructure, whether that's manufacturing, whether that's resource extraction, um, when we make those things harder to do and more expensive, we shouldn't be surprised when we have less of it over time. And in fact, all of the very good economic studies that look and try to compare more to less heavily regulated industries in environmental terms, regions that are under heavier or lighter uh, environmental control, what you find is that uh, when you put areas or industries under very tight environmental restrictions, surprise, surprise, you get a lot less investment in them and a lot less job creation in them. And there are some times when that's the right decision. I'm not here to say that we shouldn't have environmental protection. But what I think we have to recognize is that laws that we put in place in the early 1970s swing the pendulum all the way to the environmental side. So the Clean Air Act is the classic example. The EPA sets a threshold for what is it considers to be the safe level of air quality. And if you are in a place that has air quality below that level, that's it. You basically can't build anything new that might contribute to pollution of that kind. Uh, even if you're in an area that's cleaner that that's already considered clean if you want to build something new you still have to use new and better technology than existing facilities use so even if you have an existing plant and you just want to do a big expansion you can't expand it in the way that it's already operating you have to put in new and better stuff uh, and so it operates as essentially this ratchet that says we're just going to tighten constantly at every juncture we're going to ask for more and costlier uh, regulation to get even cleaner air and we've, you know, we've gotten some tremendous gains. The air is much cleaner than it used to be. But we now have many more problems in our industrial economy and much cleaner air. And yet we continue to say, nope, just keep tightening, keep tightening. And I think that's the wrong balance. So all I say is, look, let's just let's just let the pendulum swing back. Let's just say you can build under existing standards. We're not going to insist that you get even cleaner every time. We're going to say we actually think we've done pretty well on environmental quality. We want to hold the line on it. But within those constraints, please, by all means, make, make as much industrial investment as you can. So I have a, uh, a wacky proposal. At least I haven't heard anybody else seriously propose it, and maybe just because I'm living under a rock. What about um, eliminating payroll taxes? And obviously, you'd need to replace those, uh, those tax proceeds somewhere. But what would that do for the labor market? So, you know, eliminating payroll taxes, especially for at the low end for for lower wages, uh, I think is a really promising idea. In a sense, it's similar to a wage subsidy. I mean, the, the first chunk of wage subsidy money that we paid someone would just cancel out their payroll taxes anyway. Uh, the, the two challenges to keep in mind are, first of all, that you are limited in the amount of impact you can have by how big the payroll tax is. So if you're talking about someone earning $10 an hour and you're thinking about both the employer and employee side of the payroll tax, you have an effect of maybe $1.50 an hour. Now, that's that's a big effect. Being able to give that person the extra $1.50 an hour would be um, would would be tremendous, but you you can't go more than you you can't give them more than what you were taking away. And so, one of the advantages of of something more like a wage subsidy structure is that you can actually go much further for the lowest wage workers. The other major challenge, as soon as you talk about payroll taxes, is you jump straight into the middle of the entitlement reform debate. 
our payroll taxes are regressive. We we tax lower wage workers at a higher rate than than higher wage workers because we tax you from your first dollar and we stop taxing once you get up above 100,000. And so in a sense that's crazy. We should obviously change that. The problem is that as soon as we do, we break that link that treats social security as a program that you're paying into and you get back what you pay in. I'm all for breaking that link. I think that's absolutely a direction we should go, both to relieve pressure on low-wage workers with lower payroll taxes on them in the on the front end, and then also by means testing who gets the benefits in old age on the back end. That, that there's, I think there's a lot of great work that can be done. Once you're having this conversation, as as you can tell probably just from what I've just said, you're not really having a kind of labor market working, you know, working class debate anymore. You're now having an entitlement reform debate, uh, and and Democrats in particular are going to be, at least in my experience, very unexperienced, very unsupportive of the idea that we should essentially stop treating, so, pretending that Social Security has this lockbox that we pay into and, and take money out of. Well, and you know, workers aren't just competing with other workers at this point; they're competing against robots. Should we uh, maybe have some payroll tax relief, but in exchange, actually start taxing automation? I don't think so. I think that kind of misunderstands the role of automation um, in, in two respects. The the first thing to recognize about automation is that automation, by definition, is the means by which workers become more productive, right? When we say that a worker becomes more productive, when, when we think that he should be earning a higher wage, we literally mean he can be producing more stuff in less time. Um, automation is one of the best ways to do that. But whatever the way you're doing it, the whole way that we become more prosperous and and raise wages for workers over time is when they can make more stuff with less of them in less time, with fewer of them in less time. So to to resist that, I think is is a little bit nonsensical. That's how we've always. That's how the labor market has always worked. That's how we should want it to work. The the second piece, both why I don't think we should tax automation, but also why I don't think we should worry about automation, is that it turns out that by and large, automation actually complements workers rather than replacing them. And what I mean by that is that when you look both at all the past breakthroughs that we've had and the ones that we're expecting, there are actually very, very few places where the machine literally renders the human worker irrelevant and you no longer need people doing it. You can think of examples like Toll Taker has essentially just been replaced by whatever that overhead thing that scans you is. But in almost every case, you still need the human element. And what you find is that the the technology, whether it's a robot or, or anything else, uh, what it's doing is it's taking over a part of the person's job. So you now require fewer people uh, in a in a given role, but you still need the person there, and that person is is more productive than ever. And so so we don't really need to worry about the need for workers going away. We in fact should be wishing uh, that that we were being that we were successful in introducing a lot more technology a lot more quickly because that's that's exactly the way that we're going to make workers more productive. Uh, and and boost their wages over time. Okay, so just as a final lighter question, we like to ask about uh, the pop culture relationship sometimes of some of our subjects. So uh, do you have a a favorite movie uh, about work? Uh, And there's a correct answer for this, by the way. Oh my gosh! Is the uh, is the correct answer Office Space? Yes, that's that is the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like it would be the correct answer. <laughs> but uh, if you have a different choice, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> gosh, a favorite movie about work? Uh, 
I, I should be ready for that question. I'll comment on the on the office space movie though, and and a little bit more generally the the kind of pop culture depiction of work, which which I think is is concerning and and is frankly part of the problem. You know, we we like to think that that the labor market is this kind of hyper economic realm and that this all comes down to dollars and cents. Um, but that's not true. If, if you think about what I was talking about, about the, the reasons that work matters, a lot of it actually comes down to how people feel about work, how they feel about it themselves, how their communities feel about it, whether it's a, a mechanism by which you gain respect and admiration and so forth and are seen to be fulfilling your obligations. And yet we have a culture that has sort of really gone the exact opposite direction and, and treated work as this thing where either you're doing this and you know either you're changing the world or your job stinks and first of all that's not true that just doesn't reflect people's actual experiences in work a, a huge share of people actually report being satisfied in their jobs uh, and that doesn't that's you know re regardless of whether it's white collar blue collar highly paid not highly paid you know when you look at what people enjoy in their jobs it can be in, in a lot of respects just having the opportunity to do something that they're good at and that is valued and a lot of the jobs that are most valued that we most need in our society are not the glamorous ones they are frankly exceptionally unglamorous uh, but they are the people working in the community that that make life possible every day and so there's no policy lever to pull on this but it's something we should talk about which is that the the kind of pervasive in Hollywood attitude that cool jobs and cool stories worth telling are about white collar professionals on the coasts, which is what most shows are about now. That's not right. And and once upon a time, a lot of the most popular media and 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 movies and shows were about much more kind of traditional, conventional um, jobs and families of the kind that most people actually have. And 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 holding that up and saying. That's good too, and that's something to be proud of. Actually, has to be a part of the solution to all this. I will just say, in defense of Office Space, is that if you recall at the end of the movie, the happy ending of the main character is that he quits his office job and becomes a, a construction worker. <laughs> yeah, like, well, that's right. So <laughs> that's you are correct. Uh, I would just say there are plenty of people who are just have workaday office jobs that uh, that are important right. jobs too. Our guest today has been Oren Cass. Oren, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Mm -hmm.